You're all part of my flock now, kids. But careful. Compare books to movies, all you get is dirty. <laughs> Pause for laughter. I love that line. <laughs> is that a Boston well, accent? Yeah, who knows what Tim Blake Nelson knows, is doing, but I love it. Accent, yeah, it's muddled. <laughs> yeah, they're in D.C., but he's part Boston, part New York, part space alien. Um, welcome to Film is Lit, the full spoilers podcast where we take a piece of literature and compare and contrast it to its film or television adaptation. My name is Danny, he, him, the self-appointed film expert, and joined from afar is my co-host and wife, Laura. Laura, say hi. Hey, I'm in Mesa in a family reunion, so we are separate, but for the second time recording remotely. Yeah, but we're also separated because uh, Laura doesn't like Minority Report as much as I do, so <laughs> a little a little rocky part in our marriage. Uh, just kidding, but also, Laura, you better lawyer up. Um, yeah, so Laura, happy to have you on. I came prepared to defend myself. I, I, no spoilers, but I still think it's a good movie. I just, I did some other research that I think I'll be able to defend myself with my opinion. So we'll see. Cool. We'll see. Yeah. I look mm-hmm. forward to hearing it. Um, you are on the defensive, I believe. <laughs> so you have a hard task ahead of you, but I, I look forward to hearing it. This is also a special episode. Why? Because we have not one guest, but two co-hosts today. Yes, and two returning co-hosts, mm-hmm. and not only are they two returning co-hosts, but they're two return guests who have been on the podcast for the most amount of times of all the guests we've had. We've had mm-hmm. a bunch of guests, all great, but today, back on the pod is my brother Tim, and then my brother Tim's friend, who's now our friend, also Ryan. Also brother. Brother Tim and Brother Ryan. (laughs) We're basically brothers. Yeah. Yeah. For those who haven't listened to your previous episodes, uh, Tim, you go first. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and then, uh, yeah. Yeah. So I think this is my my fourth episode now and let's keep it rolling. Let's do four more. I'm ready to to keep talking because I love movies like like these two. Uh, Well, these three. And I think that's why Ryan and I got along so well is... Uh, we first connected over lacrosse in school, but I think we also realized we had almost the exact same taste in movies, with probably the exception of the Fast and Furious mm-hmm. series, um, which, as we all know, is one of the greatest you know franchises ever made. But yeah, I'm uh, I'm sitting over here in Charlotte, North Carolina, and um, excited to talk about this. I have I think I have a, a Joe Rogan podcast worth of of notes and discussion points, um, but we'll try to keep it to. Uh, the, the hour here. Sweet. Now, Ryan, what about you? Glad to be back. Uh, been a while since I joined you guys uh, for one of these, and thank you guys for having me back. Yeah, as Tim mentioned, uh, I think this is my third time, uh, and we have known each other since college, uh, connected over love of movies. I think we actually only communicated in movie quotes for the entirety of our college careers um, uh, <laughs> since we've known each other. Uh, but yeah, love literature, film, um, analyzing instances of adaptations and the similarities and differences and why. But uh, grateful to be back for the third go around for me. Thanks for coming. Yes. Thank you both. Not only are you both cool and knowledgeable, but your episodes get the most downloads. <laughs> so we knew we needed to have you back to really 
spike up our our listens. Uh, for some background, Tim's episodes uh, were Ready Player One, the joint episode with our other brother Matt on American Psycho, and then we did coverage on Dune and uh, talked about extensive Dune Two. Coverage of Dune, yeah, extensive, mm. and yeah, did some predictions for the casting of Dune Two. None of which came true. <laughs> they were all wrong. They were all wrong, but so, we were so right. neither of you are precogs. Yeah. No. <laughs> What's the minority Our report, man? Hive mind it's, together. We we are the minority report, which ah. is, you know takes sense. Yes. Well done. And yeah, so this is Tim's fourth appearance on the pod. This is also technically Ryan's fourth appearance because he was on for episode on the Green Knight. He was on for Akira. He's on for this now, but he was with us as Finn was lit on the Super 70 podcast talking about Dune and Akira, a bunch of other things. So check out that episode of the Super 70 podcast. So you both technically have four appearances. You're tied for the lead. So congrats. I don't have a cash we'll prize or anything like that. We'll have to send out like smoking jackets, like SNL when you reach the I, five I timers. I want the club. five five timers club. Yes. Yeah. Please. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I want a film as lit. Five That's actually a good jacket. idea. That'd be a great one. Or a hat to go along with Ryan's hat collection back there. Ooh, yeah. I'll get a screenshot. Oh, I got a screenshot for the Instagram. So we'll hi- highlight that. Great hat collection. Ryan. So many comments on those hats on one of the conference calls. <laughs> All right. Well, today on the pod, very exciting. I kind of spoiled it, but we are covering Minority Report, the 2002 Steven Spielberg film. Ever heard of him? Small indie (laughs) filmmaker. Uh, And then based on the 1956 short story by one of the fathers of science fiction, Philip K. Dick. Wow. What, uh, What an episode. How can we contain this to an hour and a half? It might be impossible. But to curb the length, let's just get right into it, to our personal journeys. Ryan, you go first. When was your first exposure to Minority Report, whether it be the short story or the film? Uh, so I think I've, I've seen this movie no less than five, maybe six times, um, you know, since it came out in 2002. Uh, but I definitely saw it when it did come out. I think I saw it in theaters. I was not at that point aware that it was based off a short story. I thought it was you know, just a sci-fi film, not an adaptation. I actually became familiar with Philip K. Dick uh, probably about 10 years ago, right when I graduated college. Uh, I became familiar with his stories, Ubik, as well as A Scanner Darkly, and then, of course, Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, which is the precursor to Blade Runner. I didn't know about Minority Report being an adaptation until probably a couple of years ago. I hadn't really delve too much into his entire catalog, but um, was interested that uh, to learn about that. Uh, did not read it until y'all provided the impetus uh, for the for me to kind of go over it, uh, being on this podcast. But it's it, it's an incredible short story. Uh, the movie does a really good job, I think, in certain aspects. Um, the short story, actually, I kind of prefer for a variety of reasons, but I think that, I mean, the movie's always been one of my favorite sci-fi films, but watching it again this time, I noticed uh, some differences in perception now than I did previously, uh, which I kind of found kind of humorous, to be honest, but looking forward to kind of diving in and and slicing it up. That kitchen scene, like 
I don't know where that came from. <laughs> Wait, the hamburgers? Mm-hmm. Oh, the ha- that's, yeah. that's classic Spielberg, baby. But exactly, like, yeah. yeah. I there love it. There were some it. comical moments that I feel like baby did. <laughs> give it all, baby. give it all to mm-hmm. me. I love it all. Um, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Tim, how about you? Yeah, so like Ryan, I did not know this was a short story. Um, and it, it's, it's interesting because Minority Report is a movie that I remembered loving, but had not remembered much outside of the main plot because it had been a long time since I last watched it. Uh, I think I was either in high school or college, you know, the last time that I, I saw it. So I, I got to watch this with some fresh eyes, which is awesome. As you two both know, I was, I was with Ryan and a bunch of guys uh, out west last week for a ski trip. And I watched the movie on the flight out, enjoyed it so much and was thinking about it all week skiing that I actually watched it again on the flight back home, uh, which was nice. just as enjoyable for me. Uh, and I picked yeah. up on a bunch of other smaller details, some good, but a lot that were pretty silly. Um, and they were details that didn't diminish the overall experience for me, but just some things that when you really think about a certain line of dialogue or the event itself actually didn't make any sense at all, which I'll get into. <laughs> so I finally got my hands on a, on a copy of the book and you know my experience with getting the, uh, the copy of the book. Um, <laughs> Uh, which I can go into, but uh, I'm going to be honest with y'all, and this may be a hot take, but I did not like the short story at all. Um, <laughs> loved, the, loved the movie, did not like the short story. I'm, I'm definitely biased in my thinking because of how good I thought the movie was and the plot of that was. But yeah, wow, I just really didn't like Philip K. Dick's writing style. Um, mm. And it's weird because he obviously has some truly amazing ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Total Recall, uh, Man in the High Castle, Paycheck, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, right? And this yeah. one. But I think his characters, dialogue, and kind of the plot arcs of these short stories were just just not well written, in my opinion. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I feel like for, for me, this sounds weird to say, but the short story was too short for me. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. Like, how do, how do you come up with such an amazing premise and not expand upon it more? with more character development and more details. Like I just, I wanted, I wanted a lot more. And I, I kind of thought I got the wrong book at first. Um, Cause I'm like, no, this is, this is too short. I need something. I heard it was a short story, but I, I wanted more. So I just, I think he, he spent too little time describing character development and too much time with like needless description of activities. So mm. yeah, I can, I can go into a lot more, but I'll, I'll save it. I uh, love, love the movie. Uh, it was it was almost as enjoyable as the first time I watched it. I, I remembered certain things, but I, I forgot a lot. Uh, but yeah, and then read the book afterwards and just, yeah, did not like it. Mm. Yeah, I think this is one of the rare cases where everyone on this podcast saw the movie before reading the material. Mm-hmm. And it's tough, especially this movie, since it's so unique, so signature, so Spielberg, to compare it to something so short regardless of quality. I mean, I'm speaking for me now, but it's like the whole time I was just so frustrated that it wasn't a full book or at least mm-hmm. a novella. I mean, make, yeah. like a this would be perfect as like a four hour audio book or something like that. But yeah, yeah. at an hour, hour, 27 minutes. Yeah, just not enough. Um, all right. So Laura, how about you? Yeah, I don't think that I grew up watching a lot of action movies. And so the first time that I watched this was with Danny when we first started dating. Like, this is one of the first movies that you ever showed me. 
And to be clear, I think it's a banger. It's really fun. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing too, so I had never read the short story either. And when I was doing some research, I found that some places were referring to it as a novelette, um, Mm. which I think is generous because I also agree it's a short story. And that's something that I struggle with sometimes with short stories for the same reason that Tim was talking about because I wanted more and I think that he's a great writer but a lot of his short stories were developed for magazine periodicals and I think that's Mm. just the way that he was able to make quick money unfortunately he was a drug addict for a long time and Mm. I think that Mm. in a lot of ways he had bursts of genius and then long periods of like depression and sort of manic episodes and so I think maybe like his unfortunately his personal life and his mental health got in the way of some of his best ideas and I I agree that there's some stuff that just like sometimes doesn't make sense or I want more of I want more detail or like he writes himself into a corner and then something kind of jumps in at a different time so the the short story I enjoyed and in fact I did end up reading a bunch of his other short stories because it came in a collection when we ordered the book but I I ended up the movie's so fun I was like you know what I'm not employed right now <laughs> like I I have plenty of time so I ended up watching a bunch of other movies that were based on PKD's writing so I ended up watching Total Recall both movies of Total Recall after I read the short stories in one day. (laughs) Um, Because again, I'm not, my job doesn't start till March. So those were also super fun. And it's just interesting to compare, like his ideas are so interesting, but that's also a short story. And it was like, I wanted more. And I like how both movies took his ideas further in some cases in the wrong direction. And I think in the 2012 movie in the very, very right direction And so my hot take was that I actually liked the Colin Farrell remake of Total Recall better than I liked this adaptation, the Spielberg adaptation of Mm. Minority Report, which again is super fun. I just think because Spielberg made it, there are some sort of Disney almost (laughs) moments that I wish weren't in there because I think it is a really like serious and interesting concept that I think that the again, Total Recall kind of did a better job of like treating it in a serious way. So that's just, Mm. that's my hot take. I still really like the movie. I just think that the other adaptation is a little bit better for me. We can gladly review Total Recall next because (laughs) that is a guilty pleasure of mine. You know what? And Danny described it as a guilty pleasure. So I was going in thinking that it was going to be kind of silly like this movie. And I wouldn't even consider it a guilty pleasure. I thought it was really fucking good. Like Colin Farrell is so... Oh, if, so if you're talking about the first Total Recall with Arnold Schwarzenegger that came out in 1990, that is a trash movie. <laughs> but, but I can see <laughs> that is how one of that... my favorite films of all time. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's super fun. But like, there's a yeah. moment in the beginning where like Arnold Schwarzenegger is screaming, and he's he's just like, <laughs> it's like what is going on? Um, but anyway, it was yeah, super fun. And... <laughs> yeah, and, it was super well. <laughs> fun to watch both movies all three movies I guess in total and I would love to cover Total Recall I just think that Philip K. Dick has some great ideas that like we talked about earlier maybe just didn't come to full fruition just because they're short stories so that's kind of my long but short relationship with the source material and and movie Nice. I will concede, Laura, that the film Minority Report does have the classic 
Spielbergian schmaltz and cheese moments. However, why it's so unique is that it is also his weirdest, one of his grossest, and like there's a lot of horror yeah. elements too. Spielberg's one of the masters, but I think it's one of the few times where he just like really went for it in terms of emotion and horror and visceral imagery. I mean, he started that way with Jaws and then he kind of moved on to family entertainment with big set pieces that are some of the best movies of all time, granted. But this feels, it feels like the best of both worlds where it's both a blockbuster, but also super weird and edgy. And if any other filmmaker came with some of these scenes, the producers would be like, no way, no way are we doing that. But he can get away with it. All right. Well, I guess to end, that kind of goes into what, to my journey I grew up watching clips of Siskel and Ebert's show at the movies. And one of Ebert's favorite movies of 2002 was Minority Report. And he showed a clip of this. I watched that clip when I was in fourth grade, I think. And I'm like, this is, this is too much for me. I don't think I can watch that movie. So it wasn't until seventh grade lacrosse tournament in uh, Saratoga, New York, this is getting very specific here, but I got heat stroke. It was in the summer. I got heat stroke. And when all my teammates were out, we we're staying at this kind of hotel with a courtyard when they were all out, you know, hanging out, I was in the hotel room recovering from heat stroke. And this was on one of the movies on the tube. And I watched the whole thing was completely transfixed. And since then I've revisited it every few years. As Laura said, when we first started dating, one of the first movies I showed her, I'm like, oh, we gotta watch. We gotta watch Minority Report. It's one of my favorite concepts for a film, just in general. And it's also so crazy that it works, being that it it's three psychics mutants who predict, predict the future, and cops use that to uh, save the city uh, of murder for the time being. So I guess I should get into the synopsis here. Uh, this is for the movie. In the year 2054 AD, crime is virtually eliminated from Washington, D.C. thanks to an elite law enforcing squad, pre-crime. They use three gifted humans called precogs with special powers to see into the future and predict crimes beforehand. John Anderton, Tom Cruise, heads pre-crime and believes in the system. However, one day the precogs predict that Anderton will commit a murder himself in the next 36 hours. Worse, Anderton doesn't even know the victim. What, uh, what a setup. And although it starts very similarly to the short story, the actual plot of the movie diverges almost instantly. So yeah, let's get into some of these differences here. Ryan or Tim, what's the first big divergence between the stories that you wanted to discuss? I'll, I'll talk really quickly about, again, maybe why I liked the movie versus why or, or, and why I didn't like the book. I, I really liked how in the movie, right, he's he's the chief, but he's not the founder of pre-crime. He's he didn't invent pre-crime, whereas in the book, right, he is the founder and he's been doing this for how many years? You know, it's like 30 years or something like that. Mm-hmm. And in the book, in the writing, you really need to just take it that because he founded this and he's doing it so long, he inherently believes in the system. And that's yeah. why. Whereas in the movie, the they created a lot of or some more conflict, right, with him losing his child. Mm-hmm. And therefore, 
he he almost needs to like to get through his day to day. He needs to believe in the system that hey, if I can prevent crime from happening, it may you know resolve my own probably haunting of the crime of losing my son. So I I already believe in Tom Cruise's character more because he he has to believe in the system versus uh, he founded it, so he's been doing it. So I, I think that was kind of one of the biggest things that stood out to me between the two is I'm just, I'm invested more in John Anderton and his need to, to run this, this unit. Yeah, that was one of the first things that I wrote down was um, Anderton gets way more backstory, which to your point, I don't think Philip K. Dick does at all, really. Um, yeah. And so that I think like very naturally connects you to the story a little bit deeper and you it makes even the conflict more upsetting, I guess, when it's used against him as well. Um, and I think the the short story is focused more on like the morality of arresting someone. And it's kind of like his way of like coming around to the idea that like, oh, maybe this doesn't work all the time, um, mm-hmm. which is still interesting, but it's different in the, in the movie, I think. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Side note with the sun, you know, and, and him revisiting the images and all that. I loved that there's this whole little side plot about how good Tom Cruise can run and how he wants his son to learn how to run like him. Like that was I just, uh, I completely forgot about that and watching that. I was like, is this, is this on purpose? Is this Tom Cruise? Saying, hey, let's he does have a get a really nice thing. shot of him running. Oh, he's got too. some like great classic... running scenes. Yeah. In all movies. And a little yeah. kid. Yeah. Exactly. But uh, I thought that was funny. Yeah, I would say this is Tom Cruise in his prime, but his whole career post Minority Report and post has been in his prime. Years he keeps later on is... keeps on getting better. <laughs> yeah, he's one of the yeah. the last true stars, and especially now in two thousand two, he just he can do both things. He can be the action hero, but he can also generate complex human feelings and emotions, which are more or less out of the short story, not included uh, just because of its uh, brevity. But yeah, the mm-hmm. whole, um, the, the whole character of John Anderton, he's, he's given the Hollywood glow up. He's not like a 50 year old overweight and balding guy. He's, he's Tom Cruise yeah. in his forties, mm-hmm. the most uh, fit guy around. So right off the bat, some differences. The short story takes place in New York city and um, kind of a dystopian uh, future after some there clearly have been some wars uh, that have happened implied wars of the nuclear variety that's what there are now mutants and the precogs are are three mutants whereas in the movie they're not necessarily deformed but they have they can see the future because during pregnancy their mothers were drug addicts to this future drug so it's implied that a side effect of experiencing this drug while in infancy is uh, clairvoyance. Well, they're not described as idiots like they are in the book, which I appreciate. Oh yeah, I, that was that's, that's another huge thing. Repeated, yeah. I think that it was really smart to not make them just complete outcasts or just people who have no relevance to society or nothing to give except for this one gift. Mm-hmm. Um, because you start to get involved in those precogs too. And I like that you start to think of them also as prisoners because they didn't really ask for this. They have this gift, but as we learn from Agatha, who, by the way, in the movie is great, um, just Mm -hmm. the inability for them to be developed in the short story is not only disappointing because there's more to do with them themselves to kind of further the whole idea of this is a complicated morality issue, but it's just really 
degrading <laughs> and yeah. and yeah. it's really sad that they are essentially i think it's just really like a taking relationship like there's there's nothing yeah. that these people get except for being suspended in like a water bath it's just sad it's really sad and and the way that that philip k dick describes them is not yeah. super pc i guess to say it nicely yeah yeah the the short story is inherently darker um mm -hmm. yeah and i don't know what that says about me with what i mentioned earlier about being more uh, gravitating more towards that tone <laughs> i think um but I, it it definitely gave me a callback with the setting and the way that I kind of envisioned it in my mind was really 2019 Los Angeles from Ridley Scott's original Blade Runner. I mean, I felt like I was kind of operating mm -hmm. uh, or envisioning this story taking place in kind of a society that's definitely dystopian, definitely struggled with evolutions in technology and kind of the clash between tradition and and kind of the un, uh, inherent, uh, imminently incoming uh, next phase of technology and kind of humanity's difficulty grasping it and, and kind of weaving it into itself successfully. There's there's definitely um, a clash there, uh, and and kind of the the technology is is definitely years ahead of its time with the way that mm -hmm. Dick describes it. Uh, but you, I got that feeling that I was still operating in like modern day New York. And the movie departs from that substantially. Everything is completely redone. I mean, it's it's modernized. It's highly technologically advanced. Uh, everything down to the transportation systems for people in general. Uh, that's you know, I, I I was watching the movie and from a tone perspective in the film, it, it felt like a combination of Starship Troopers and iRobot. It mm. kind of had that because there's that one instance in the film where there's that long extended shot of the news report or the ad uh, involving pre, uh, you know, pre-crime. And that almost could be pulled directly out of Paul Verhoeven's Starship Troopers because there's, you know, riddled throughout that film, there's those little snippets of propaganda that are put forth and throughout that film. And that was like almost, a, I felt like it was almost a callback to that film because it came out a few years earlier, but um, I'm probably reaching on that, but uh, then it had this dressed up feel of like the iRobot kind of Apple technology kind of pushed in there, but it was just very interesting, the differences in tones um, it with, in regard to the way that Dick describes through Anderton, the perception of the precogs, it was jarring uh, to say the least. And it's their, their situation in the, you know, short story versus the film is markedly different. I mean, it's it's almost like they're kind of stuffed back in this almost storage room of servers and computers and hooked into wires. And it's very cyberpunk. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, Dig was so far ahead of his time. I mean, he was one of the forefathers yeah. of, you know, cyberpunk in 70s and 80s, late 70s, 80s. And so it definitely had that feel. And then you have the crisp, clean, comforting setting for, you know, Art Dash and Agatha in the movie. So very much you know cleaned up and you know family friendly but the short story was much more raw and and i kind of kind of liked that it kind of made it hit home a little bit harder but those are my that's my biggest noticeable difference from the on from from the start yeah this is a, it's a really small detail i'll keep it quick but i think something that really grounds that clean sort of veneer that is throughout the movie I really love that they use wooden balls 
to spit the precogs visions out because I think that kind of cleaned up the whole idea that there was in the short story, there's like a second viewer at a different location. I think that's really smart because I feel like that's one of those things where you're like, okay, Philip K. Dick thought about, well, how would you ensure quality? And since I work in quality management, I think like that's, that's a perfect idea of him having another agency review those cards. But the idea of Mm -hmm. engraving it into a piece of wood so that you can't do it again, like you can't do it twice or, or mix or um, forge. Yeah. Forge a different one or take something out and do something different to it because it's in wood. I think that was a really smart way of grounding the fact that there's this advanced technology but also there's an understanding that it can be manipulated in some way. And so to use something from nature that can't be reproduced was kind of a fun, smart way of making that like a visual statement instead of kind of, they explained it a little bit, but it's visual and it's so, smart. Laura, I'm going to, I'm going to flip this on its head a bit because this was one of the, like the things I noticed upon my rewatch. Um, I, I get everything you're saying and I, I loved the wood balls. I thought that was so cool. When they, <laughs> they did that. I mean, obviously, right. That, that was incredible. There's a scene, though, where Fletcher, Neil McDonough's character, is describing this to Whitworth. And he says, you know, since each piece is unique, the shape and grain is unique, making it impossible to forge. But when you think about it, like, wouldn't that make it the easiest thing to forge? Because every single one is different. So, like, if every ball is its own shape and design... Oh, so anyone anything. could just like throw it in and there. And it could forge no any one... ball, right? Because I see it's what not you're if it was a if if it was like, okay, the the killer and the the shooter are the exact same grain, exact same design, same ball, okay, that's something, yeah, you can't afford. But if every single ball is unique, then any ball is any ball. You you could kind of in my opinion, I was like, oh, that'd be the easiest thing to forge, right? <laughs> I see what you're saying because they do split. So in the short story, it's a card that has two lines it's and it's basically two names. Yeah. But I see yeah. what you're saying because then in the movie, they split it into two things. I guess yeah. that's something that bothered me, but I didn't think about why. And now that you say that, yeah. <laughs> you're right. Someone could just, just get two balls and like throw them in at the same time. Balls, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I, I just when that. when Neil when Neil McDonough was describing it, I was like, I think that's the exa- opposite of what you're saying. But I guess again, yeah. one one of the small things I kind of thought mm. about, I was like, ah. But they they didn't have to make it two separate balls. I'm it could, all, be, could the be the same like yeah. yeah, the same ball. Yeah, I, I think I, I totally agree with that if we're staying within the world of, you know, 2054 DC where this technology exists and has existed for six years as the viewer, we are kind of going along with the understanding that pre-crime is 100% perfect. So Mm -hmm. it's the only city in which this tech is utilized. So that's the only machine that could generate those balls with perpetrator and victim. And so it's it's not like it's nationalized or internationalized. It's this very small, unique organization that's the only thing that can do that. But to your point, totally understand that thought. I think just for the movie's sake, we're kind of operating oh, under yeah. the understanding that it's like, okay, that's the only thing that can do this. And we just take McDonough at his word. You know, when I still he provides the... Yeah, the explanation when it's like it. when it's shape when it's shaping the balls and they drop, oh, I was yeah. like, oh, oh, beautiful, way cooler than the cards. But 
I and yeah. I only I I only notice it after watching it, you know, five days after the first one and being like, wait a second. I had to rewind it a few times. I still love yeah. it. Wouldn't change it. Yeah. The balls lead to that great visual motif. And Spielberg is known for visual motifs, but when Anderton is describing mm. the uh system of pre-crime to Whitwer, his first name is changed to Danny Whitwer. So I like that. Uh, played by Colin Farrell. Love the man. Ooh, amazing. But yeah, he's described. He rolls the ball across the his interface there, and Colin Farrell catches it, and he says, "You caught it. Why'd you catch it?" He's like, "It's gonna fall." You're certain? He goes, "Yes." But it didn't fall. You caught it. Just because you changed something from happening doesn't mean that it wasn't going to happen. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So it's like a, a perfect right there. You can co- mm. completely understand it. It's much more cinematic compared to the short story. With the short story, the precogs are mumbling and their mumblings are recorded. And from these recordings, you get those predictions on the punch cards. Whereas the movie, a lot cooler, you see it visually, all the precogs visions visually, Mm -hmm. and then comes out through those balls. So love that decision. I love the music that Anderton likes to play oh, when he's music, when he's in yeah. the zone uh it's uh franz schubert's symphony number no. eight in b minor more commonly known as the unfinished symphony perfect little touch there i like that, that a lot. whole that whole sequence i mean brilliant right augmented reality with the gloves yeah. Yeah. i mean we're we're pretty close to that now yeah. Yeah, I think we're going to, we're, we have touch screens, we have holograms, we have augmented and virtual reality. So we're pretty close to that. And that whole scene is just like, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah, I feel like I have so many things to say in response to what you're just talking <laughs> about. But I, a small thing, a small tweak that the movie smartly makes is that pre-crime is a pilot program that only mm-hmm. is legal in D.C., And I think Mm -hmm. that gives us two things. The first thing is that when Anderton is explaining it to Whitwer, it makes sense because something that I struggle with a lot of times in literature is like, how do you deliver information organically? And the problem in the short story is like, Whitwer already knows how pre-crime works because it's national and he's worked in it before. This is basically just a promotion for him. So for Anderton to explain it to the reader, it's like he says a couple times like well you already know this or something and it's like ah Mm -hmm. but that's your problem like you need to deliver it organically and you didn't so i love that it's a pilot program that he has to defend to whitwer i love that Mm -hmm. super smart like storytelling the other thing um that i think that gives us is like more of a motivation for bad actors to want this to work so badly that they'll do whatever they can to make sure it works Mm-hmm. And that's an extremely compelling way of giving the short story something extra in the movie, like some extra drama. Because I think another thing that adaptations tend to fail to do of a short story is they add stuff that just didn't need to be there. But I think it's a really organic, again, way of pushing the story further, that there are going to be people who want to tweak the system to make sure it works exactly the way they want it to work. And in the short story, the funny thing is, the ironic thing is that he thinks it's a conspiracy, but actually it's not. It was just that the system was flawed and they hadn't identified that flaw yet. But again, I think the more compelling story is that someone, there is a conspiracy going on, you know, like Mm -hmm. there was something that someone high up could manipulate 
and use in their favor. And they still wanted it to be like nationalized because A, they get to keep the power and B, that's the only way that they're not going to be discovered as a murderer. So that's just like, there's so much more storytelling there. It's just really, really smart the way they adapted that. Absolutely. Totally agree with all that, Laura. Yeah. And I would argue that the short story has as much plot as the movie. It's just condensed so severely that I was having trouble uh, keeping up. However, I wanted to respond. Ryan was kind of talking about the short story a while ago and uh, Philip K. Dick's work. And the novel did give me almost exact vibes of uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? It kind of both pieces have this. I forget what critic described it this way, but it's like a cosmic helplessness to them. Where in uh, the Blade Runner, that novella, the whole time he's searching for meaning and one spark of life left on Earth, and at the end, it's kind of like it's like no, basically everything's either a replicant. Or if you're human, you know, your existence is really meaningless. And that same kind of nihilism is present in the short story where the whole country is now under this system and it's flawed, but too late. The last line of the short story is like, it might happen to you. Like Mm -hmm. uh, Anderton talking to Whitworth, like you're now the chief of police and the system is set up in a way where this can and will happen to you sometime down the line. Mm-hmm. So I, I did appreciate that signature punch that comes with all his stories. And, and I haven't read all his works, but those that I have read, it all shares that thread of the ending is already here. Mm-hmm. So Dan, I'll, I, 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 I want to touch on that real quick because I, I was kind of shitting on the, the short story earlier, but I did like the ending better than the movie in the short story. I liked that pre-crime was still in place. I liked that it was, hey, you know, this is what it was supposed to, this is what was supposed to happen and I did it and now I'm being shipped off and good luck. You know, yeah. this, is your, this is your problem now. Whereas in the movie, it was very Disney ending. Yeah. And uh, I can get into, I, I, I thought there, there were two alternate endings that could have been way better for the movie um, but I, I did I did enjoy the short story a lot more because because it was darker I think and what would probably actually happen yeah yeah Philip K Dick could never write an ending that uh, <laughs> happy or yeah. heartwarming and I while I do like the ending I, I do recognize that it's a, a huge departure from the original text and Spielberg was very clear in interviews that this movie was very different a quote from him is saying. The Philip K. Dick story only gives you a springboard that really doesn't have a second or third act. Most of the movie is not Dick's story, to the chagrin of Philip K. Dick yeah. fans, I'm sure. So yeah, he's he was very clear about that. Go ahead. Laura. I can jump in because what yeah. I, all I was going to touch on was I think being Philip K. Dick, one of his major themes throughout his works that I've read is definitely the question of like what constitutes a human. And Mm -hmm. I think that in general is never going to be an easy answer. And I think it's so interesting that he just kind of kept going to that well. And he came up with such incredibly different ways of asking that question and also answering that question. Because in every single story, there's kind of a linchpin of someone 
usually it's kind of like that main character who's confronted with something and kind of either has to make a decision or come to terms with the fact that maybe they're not even human. But it's just so interesting. Like a writer can come up with that many very different ways of answering that question, but I don't think it's ever happy. Like you were talking about, like it's also, it's such an existential question yeah. that I don't think that he's ever going to have a happy ending. And maybe that's why I enjoyed Total Recall a little more because I thought it was a little bit more true to how Philip K. Dick writes. And I also like his, the gritty nature of all of his stories, even if they are short stories. So maybe that's why I enjoyed that adaptation a little bit more because with Spielberg, there were just so many times where I was like, this isn't funny. Like it's not a funny situation. And maybe that's just me being a stick in the mud, (laughs) but like, but that question (laughs) intrigues me so much that I want it to be treated seriously. And there were just some moments where I was like, ah, yeah, like it's funny. I'm giggling, but it's not maybe true to the source material. Maybe that's just me being annoying, but. Laura, did you not like the scene with Peter Stormare? Or remind me who that is. The eye doctor. Loved that scene. <laughs> I mean, it's so silly. I mean, again, like, I think the movie is great. I think if it was, like, if it hadn't been based on a Philip K. Dick story, like, I really would have embraced the silliness, but maybe it's just me being, mm. you know. Best scene in the movie. So oh, you want to talk so about gritty and grimy like Philip K. Dick? That, that scene. But also the whole visual look. So like, of the film. Oh yeah. The the later the later scene where he submerges himself in ice water to get away from the spiders, like that is so fucking cool. I the yeah. whole eye thing is not in the short story. And that also seems like a really organic idea that people would start to pay, but it also crops up in Electric Sheep. Like that almost felt like an homage to Blade yeah. Runner about replacing mm. people's eyes. Um, that seems like a really organic thing that criminals would start to go to the black market for, because if that's the only mm-hmm. thing, like, I love that it's even gone past like fingerprints. Cause they, you could obviously just scan a fingerprint very easily, but they've gone as far as to perfect the eye scan technology, which even now is more applicable because like every time you look at your phone, it's scanning your face and eyes. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, I just, I did really love that whole thing about how he had to replace his eyes and how he kept them. And although that was a plot hole, I think like, they would have removed his credentials Access? after yes. his I, I did think of that. I was like, oh, yeah, that's dumb. That's that so... Yeah. But still, the eye replacement thing, super smart. I love yeah. that whole thing. But yeah, that was like a plot hole where I was like, he would not have been able to use his eyeballs to get Because right. he, he went through that whole procedure, right, to get new eyes. Yeah. To avoid detection <laughs> so he could go to the police station. But once at the station, he uses his eyes. You'd think there'd be a, an alarm. Almost immediately, yeah. 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 <laughs> and changes his, changes his face so it sags, but doesn't go, like, doesn't fool anybody with that. He just well, does it that's to break in and then things. he tells Wally immediately, like, hey, I'm John Anderson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's one of those classic things where, like, you can't mess with Tom Cruise's face too much because this is yeah. the moneymaker. So. Yeah. Yeah. but anyway right. yeah I, I i do love that whole idea and and like you're talking about like there's some really gritty moments that i thought really harkened back to a lot of pkd's source material that were just it, maybe not his ideas but someone thought of them and they were smart and made sense with the story so yeah. i keep being impressed um 
when I when I remember that the movie came out in 2002 because yes. watching yeah. it now. Agreed. So first off, this movie holds up so yeah. well. Um, yeah, it does. But the the eye dent or whatever they call it, eye scanning, and then the scene where he's at the mall and like every ad is targeted towards him specifically yes. because they're all scanning. Like that's again similar to the the augmented reality touchscreen. There is is like we're pretty close to that, and it was kind of weird reflecting on how natural that felt watching like oh yeah like we're gonna be here pretty soon and then yeah. realizing oh yeah this was 2002 and there was this is way ahead of its time so i loved that because it was again not too far off from where i think we're heading unfortunately with privacy and targeted ads mm -hmm. and man they were they were calling that pretty early they nailed the targeted ads in that yeah. movie yeah, yeah it was I, I actually that was one of the more unsettling points when I watched him going through that train station, getting on the train, it was like John Anderson, John Anderson. And I was like, this does not make my stomach feel good right now. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> well, and the great thing about that too is like, it was a Spielbergian moment, I'm sure in 2002, but we make jokes all the time about how our phones are listening to us. And it like, it's a joke, it's scary, mm -hmm. but it is a joke because the only way that we can sort of deal with it is by saying like, it's so creepy that now I have to joke about it. And so even mm -hmm. now, 20 years later, going back, and that is the joke, too, also just feels like Spielberg is talking to us in the future. Like, he yeah. predicted that, yeah, that it would even be a joke, so. Hits a little too close to home. But I'm sad that we don't have those sonic boom guns uh, oh, that they the use. Yes, shotguns. I wrote that down, too. That <laughs> technology I think we is all so... have that in our notes, like. <laughs> Whenever I'd, rather, I'd rather have a six stick. Six stick. Which was so ridiculous. Yeah, use the six stick. Um, yeah, whenever those sonic boom guns come out in that car factory sequence, I'm always surprised. I've seen the movie countless times, but there's so many little cool details like that packed into mm -hmm. this film that are absent from the short story. Again, not a knock on Philip K. Dick's writing. I just think that had he expanded it, it, maybe... It's bad. Yeah, okay. Um <laughs> Yeah, I, I wanted to talk about the visual look and language of the film and how it reflects the novel. I know Laura and I, I think we might disagree on whether we like it or not, but the very famous tidbit about Janusz Kaminski's uh, cinematography is that he did a bleach bypass of the film. So shot on film and it's exactly what it sounds like. He used bleach to desaturate the colors of the mm. film crystals. And then also in the post-process, they way heightened the whites. So all the lights are blown out to an insane degree. It gives a very rich, tactile, unique kind of Spielbergian look to it. That's kind of similar to Kaminsky's shots and Save It Priving ryan a little bit but mm -hmm. to like the 10th degree now laura i know that you had some problems with the look yes yay or nay i so my only comment before you continue is that if you can tell me why that was visually a good storytelling technique i'll be a fan of it but if there's no reason if it was just stylistic if it was just a stylistic choice then it's maybe not my favorite can I can I say my my take on 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 why Dan and then maybe you can explain the real re reason why? Sure. I'm curious because I I, I have an, 
opinion yeah. as well. Burns, done. Burns, you go, you you go first, man. I want to hear your your take on it. So, the the movie and the story uh, deals with with uh, memory, especially in the film, um, and what impact or gravity memory holds, or even thought, you could say, because when we're dealing with precogs, it's not maybe necessarily technically memory. It's kind of a forethought into the future as to what's going to occur, but it's still occurring in the brain. So to me, I did absolutely notice it from a stylistic perspective, but was thinking, you know, it's it's hard to determine kind of reality at points. I think Anderton maybe as a character is going through this crisis of, you know, what is my future? What is my reality? And then there's also the backdrop of him dealing with the previous trauma and tragedy of his son, uh, losing his son. And, and even when those moments are played back through that uh, projection screen that he's got at his home, um, that's one of the most apparent displays of that filming technique or cinematography technique of that bleaching, Dan, that you mentioned being present. I mean, it's throughout the whole film, but that's like very, very present because it's, it's dark in the room and then it's obviously focused on the memory itself and then his son. And it's kind of showing us Anderton's focus as well through the viewer. We're kind of placed behind him sometimes and that. So I think, I think it's kind of this dream sequence. I mean, this whole movie mm-hmm. is almost like dreamlike and it's, it's kind of playing into that uh, focus on thought and memory and emotion and it kind of lifted that theme up a little higher just through that stylistic device, to me at least. Uh, so yeah. not very well explained, but I think it definitely has something to do with perception, reality, memory. That's that's yeah. to me what it's, I kind of got way, from it. Way deeper, way deeper than what I was thinking. Yeah, <laughs> it probably makes a lot more sense. I, I, I kind of was experiencing it as we're in this futuristic time when they're trying to trying to make it seem like everything is perfect and working well and going well, but the true nature of the the city and just the environment is dirty in a way or just thrown mm. off a little bit. And and that's why like it it looks cl- the, the 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 city looks clean, it looks futuristic, but with that those kind of like those lights that are way bright, like things are fuzzy, things are like off. Um mm. it's just kind of masking what is actually going on mm. um that was kind of how i took it but the uh the much simpler take on the uh <laughs> the lighting no i think both of those are very insightful yeah. takes that are both valid all i have for proof is just a quote uh, that i found during my research is that spielberg when talking to uh Janusz kaminsky the quote is that he wanted to create the ugliest and dirtiest movie either of them had <laughs> ever made. And dirtiest? So yeah. Tim, speaking to your point, underneath the see, yeah. the facade, I call it the ugliest, yeah, yeah, interesting, yeah, yeah, underneath that facade of progressive technology and programs, there is that grimy dirtiness that's clearly upsetting and wrong. And mm-hmm. Ryan, speaking to your point of like trying to grasp on to reality and figure out like what is going on there is a dreamlike visual language to the film that does come out i think in the cinematography is it a little much at times yeah i think there's one shot of not at all of, <laughs> uh yeah uh, anderton talking to his wife at her you know little cabin there 
and they're on the dock and you you cannot see their faces <laughs> you you're like where are we but i think really unique uh so have we swayed you laura um yeah i mean i i like both answers a lot and what about my answer <laughs> no you're just like propping both arguments up but i like the whole idea of what I guess it brings me back to the question of who is a person because in both the mm. book and the movie, that's a huge question about like kind of questioning your own intentions and whether the thought is enough to make you one thing or if you have to follow through with an action to make it true. Mm. And I really liked, I think there are specifically, there are some explicit lines in the movie that Anderton is asking who am I? Cause he's having this huge identity crisis. He's been stuck for the last six years just because he doesn't know what to do without his son and obviously his marriage. And I like that whole question. I don't know that it's completely answered by the end because it seems to kind of drop by the wayside as soon as him and his wife get back together, which is kind of a Spielberg thing, whatever. Mm. Like, of course they get back yeah. together at the end Didn't of the movie. Like but and of course she's fucking pregnant by the end. Like, <laughs> ah, that stuff was just like, come on. Like that's that really yeah. like took me away from the crux because I think Ooh, the But I do I do have a good take on this. Put it put a pin. Oh on. yeah? Put okay, it, okay, yeah. yeah. So I think yeah. all I to like wrap this up a little bit, I think maybe what I was trying to say when I lost my train of thought at the beginning of the episode was like the book is more about specifically how Anderton comes around like he he's his faith is restored in the system in the process even though there's a flaw he still really believes in it he thinks that true crime is the right way to go in terms of preventing murders um but i think in the movie it's more about that identity question and i like that he's even looking back and even like as he's experiencing the present he's still trying to figure out his how his own actions can create his identity sort of like this next step to move forward in his life because i think he's in such a transition period that he's hmm. really looking to see like how do my actions contribute to who i become in the next stage of my life so i, I just yeah. i think the visual storytelling of that is insightful and it does feel like a choice like i appreciate it a little bit more if you think about it in that way yeah <laughs> but it, Tim, do you want to take a pin out of your thought about the end of the movie? That's Family. Like hokey. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have, again, I have two alternative endings that I thought it, that if I were making this movie, right, I would have done to make this a lot better because yeah, I, I really didn't like Burgess killing himself at the end. Like I, I just, to me, I, that didn't make any sense. This is a guy who murdered somebody and was going to frame John, put him away for the rest of his life and like perfectly okay with that to keep the empire that he built rolling. And so the fact that he, okay, he kills himself to save John, like he was going to put him in a vegetable state for the rest of his life anyway. Like why, why wouldn't you kill him? So, you know, had, had Lamar chosen to shoot John, he would have been arrested for murder, but it would have, proven that pre-crime works. Um, mm -hmm. And the Leo Crow's murder and John's murder would have been spun off as like a, a human flaw, right? It wasn't due to pre-crime failing. It was that they didn't get there in time. So I just, I didn't like that. 
My first alternate ending, which which would have made more sense for Burgess, is that he shoots John and then shoots himself because he just he completely lost everything he built and mm. everything's for nothing by only killing himself. If, if he shoots John first and then shoots himself, it, again, still proves that it works, it pre-crime continues. The, the other, that was just kind of like a quick, oh, you could have gotten away with both things, right? And, and not lost everything uh, for nothing. The other alternate ending, which I think would be more compelling is that after he kills Crow and is apprehended and he gets the halo put on him, this is a little Total Recall-esque, but like, could the rest of the movie be a dream of him being in prison? Because, right, and I thought that was kind of where they were going the first time I watched it because Tim Blake Nelson, right, he was saying, you know, they're, they're sleeping. Some say it's better. All your dreams can come true. And like, everything turns out well and perfect for him. So after he's captured and put the halo on, the rest of the movie is a dream because things almost work out too well, right? And not quite well. Burgess has a slip up where Laura says it. I don't know why she tells him he slipped up right there. Um, she yeah. conveniently has left his gun and eyes so he could then go in and take him out. And then, um, yeah, he, he goes and, and Burgess kills himself and then he's happy and back with his wife and they're pregnant. So like if he were in the halo and all his dreams come true, like that is the exact story that would happen. So I, I would have liked it to have been like, Oh, he's, he's just in the sleep now and pre-crime's going on business as usual. And he's dreaming that I thought that would have been a little bit darker. Right. And but, far. Yeah. yeah. I like mm, that a yeah. lot. Yeah. Which again, the, the way it plays out, would make complete sense that's that's what happened because that's what we're told has happened when you're when you put that halo on so again i wanted pre-crime to continue on i hated that all of it was for nothing and again just thinking about all that burgess went through to get to where there he's at now i don't see him killing himself that just mm -hmm. didn't make any sense to me all of it wasn't nothing for anderton though i think although it is schmaltzy the character growth of him not necessarily getting over his son's death, but starting anew with his wife yeah, yeah. again. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like I, this is an uphill battle here, but I, I'm pushing for the schmaltz. Yeah, you like it? Yeah, Ryan, do you have any takes on that? I think Tim's for the purpose of the film, it's really, you know, the fact that Lamar takes his own life is, is kind of character development for Lamar and for Anderton. Um, because when you kind of weigh the the uh, the loss between the two characters, you could almost say that pre-crime is, you know, and, and they actually make a reference to this. Um, Heinemann, Dr. Heinemann, says a very quick line when Anderton, you know, and, and encounters her in her garden. She, I think she says, like, I always used to joke that Lamar and I were the mother and father of pre-crime. So right there, it's kind of like, insinuating that this, you know, institution of pre-crime is, is their child is, is everything that they've worked for. So you also compare that to, you know, the very obvious plot line um, or subplot of Anderson dealing with the loss of his actual child. Um, and so to, to weigh the decisions uh, at the moment of loss against the two characters, it further furthers Lamar as the villain um, and really, I think, drives home 
uh, cowardice, uh, maybe in that regard, where he lost everything he's, he's worked for his life's over, makes a decision to just kind of uh, his penance has come. Um, he's also admitting guilt to killing Ann Lively. And it's a difficult scene to watch. Um, but you also see in that moment, Anderton pushing forward and striving onward in the wake of just complete grief and loss that he's been dealing with for such a long time, but he still gets up every day and goes out and tries to do good or believes in a system where he is doing good. That harkens back to the character in the short story where at the very end, the decision made to kill Kaplan is a utilitarian one. And so he's putting the benefit to society, basically utilitarianism, you know, being the choice that's better for most is better than the choice for just yourself above his own self-preservation, which is one thing I still haven't quite worked out, whether I feel like, you know, Anderton's arc through the movie is really self-preservation um, and how it differs in that regard, I think maybe a little bit from the close of the short story, but I don't really, Tim, I agree with you. I don't really like, you know, that section of the film, but I think that there is a purpose for it. And to me, that's what it is, is just at that moment, really giving a lot of meat on the bone to the character development of both of them, because they're not super deep. I mean, Cruz's character is much deeper than I think Burgess, because we don't, we're not exposed to Burgess that much throughout the film, but that, kind of gives gravity and magnitude to what pre-crime meant to Lamar and why he maybe went to the lengths that he did. Um, mm -hmm. So that's, that's kind of my, my take on it. Dan, I think, I, I think I have a, I have a short film idea for you in your studio and you heard it here first, right? You should do, this is, this is, this reminds me um, of Ready Player One at the end when they just threw in the whole like, Oh yeah, we decided to close down the internet on Tuesdays and Thursdays and like the severe consequences that that would bring. Mm -hmm. Thinking about the consequences of just stopping the pre-crime unit after six years of it, you should do a film of like the week after that happens and how there's a thousand murders in Washington, D.C. <laughs> and okay. the city going into chaos. Because I like, like, if you just stop that, there would be crazy consequences, right? I like that you brought that up because I I really love the conundrum that pre-crime presents because mm -hmm. and it's it's talked about fairly deeply in both the book and the movie but like the true consequences of it either mm -hmm. being in existence or not being in existence is something that I'm still stuck on like that's what the movie and the yeah. book kind of left me with because even the fact, like, I think somebody says a throwaway line in the movie where it's like, what about, like, rapes or, <laughs> like, theft? Yeah. They really do it's a great distinction to bring up. Yeah, yeah. I, I really think that, again, it being a pilot program kind of answers that a little bit where I feel like in the movie it's not a perfect system yet. And so, like, maybe they're trying to figure out the most intense crime that can be very morally easy to say well you know there was there was going to be a murder we've saved someone's life that's a pretty cut and dry thing but I do like I, I'm still thinking about the consequences of you know other crimes of 
how does the penal system change if you are not Mm -hmm. technically guilty, but you had the intent to kill or the intent to rape or the intent to kidnap or rob a bank or something like that. Like I'm still trying to figure out how that works. And even Mm -hmm. in the whole Thomas Blake Nelson detention center, Tim, Tim Blake. Oh, what did I say? Okay. Sorry. Tim Blake, Tim Blake Nelson detention center. Yeah. (laughs) Like, Tim Robinson, detention center. Um, <laughs> like, how how does that work? Like, I the book talked a little bit about them having detention centers and not like it's not like a prison system, but yeah. I actually something that I would have wanted more discussion of in the book. There's another throwaway line by one of the arresting officers or something where he's like oh, everybody in the detention center will know who you are because you're the reason that everybody is detained and they all believe that they're innocent. And technically they are. And that kind of, he never goes to prison or he never goes to that detention center. So it doesn't become an issue. But again, like all of these are just compounding in my mind, like all the questions that I have. um, And I think that it does kind of lend itself to some kind of, maybe not a a sequel, but maybe a spinoff of some kind where we, just kind of get to discuss or see how that detention center works or the penal system works after you have someone detained who's not technically guilty, but had every intention to commit a crime. So anyway, I don't have any answers. I'm just still... Yeah, that's a great question. It's kicking up all these questions in my head. I don't have any answers either, but that's one of the reasons why the Philip K. Dick story is so compelling because in theory, this is a pretty great system of justice, right? Exactly. They've proven for six years that they can stop murder. And in the short story, they've proven it for ostensibly a much longer time. However, a reoccurring dream, or should I say a nightmare of mine, is being framed for a crime. Something, a dream, I don't know, maybe if I go to therapy, I can suss out why I believe this. But I keep on having this dream where I show up to a crime scene. And I like see the robbers leave or I see the robbers kill someone or criminals kill someone. And then the cops come up to me and I go, you know, it was that person. And then the cops go, no, you did it. (laughs) You did it. And then I'm just arrested. And I feel like that's kind of the scenario where that, that the book and movie present is that someone who had no prior knowledge or motivation to commit a crime all of a sudden is being convicted uh, without due process. So I, you know, it's, I'm on both sides here. Like, of course, I'd want the system to go on. But also, the minute I put myself in Anderton's shoes, I'm like, oh, wait a second. No, of course, of course not. Like, of course, you need due process, right? Mm -hmm. There would also be a lot of cops Mm -hmm. arresting cops for actually murdering people. (laughs) (laughs) Like, true snaps yeah. this is but, the commentary i mean i don't yeah like i don't know ryan do you have any thoughts because i feel like i saw you reacting <laughs> at certain points it's a tough one i mean again coming down to kind of the decision at the end of the, the short story it makes sense right i mean at least as myself i believe that i would just knowing myself and how i think about things i think that that's a logical decision to make but if I'm actually in that position from a self-preservation perspective, do I argue that free will is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what is being violated by the system itself? And 
And I think that the movie actually does a great job of bringing that question to the surface. And I can't remember which part, but I think it might be hinted at when he first goes into the detention center and, and every, and it's really creepy. Honestly, it's like really crisply and technologically advanced, but at the same time, very jarring. And I was thinking, you know, in comparison to detention centers or, or correctional facilities today, I mean, to be locked up and standing up for an indefinite period of time. I mean, they have like vital sign monitoring systems and it's like, if you're inactive for that period of time, you're just, your body's going to crash and give out and it's horrible. Um, and so that was a true imprisonment. I mean, not that there's any really true distinction between the two, but that was just an awful existence, I think is what I was trying to say. But, but the free will question is a big issue mm. with, with pre-crime. And I, I, I think that what, it, what I boiled it down to for myself was there is still a moment where you can change the decision. Now that kind of gets into determinism and free will and, and it's like, am I able to change or is the course of events already planned by what's happened in the past? Am I definitely going to commit this crime or not? And that's actually, I think, at the very beginning of the movie, when we go through Howard Marks's experience, you, it's a terrible scene. I mean, in my opinion, it's, it's brutal. And, and they, they show how upsetting it is to his character. And especially like he slumps down on the side of the bed and that act almost happens on top of him. And as you know, he's raising the scissors, they get him right. And I think this shows that, <laughs> that scene where Tom Cruise like looks at his watch as he's got his arm around Marks and it's like clicks down to one second. I was like, all right. Um, but you hear him as they're dragging him out. He's like, I didn't do anything. Like I, I, I didn't do, I wasn't going to do anything or something like that. And, mm -hmm. and it's, it's like, well, yeah, you didn't do anything because they stopped you. So it's, it, it, and it's like this self-fulfilling prophecy. It's, it's really hard to kind of determine how I feel about whether or not I would want that program to continue. I think I wouldn't because yeah. I think of what the greater meaning of free will is to everyone is far more important than and this is really difficult to say, but I think everybody has their own right to choose and mm. that's taking that away essentially. I mean, even if it does mean committing something um, it's still as a human being, I believe an innate right to have that choice. So I think that's, that's kind of the way I look at it. This is also making me see it in a little bit of a different perspective too, because something we talked about in our last episode on Moneyball is that we really like to think of data as objective, but in a lot of ways, data is just as subjective as the people who are analyzing it and even collecting it in a lot of ways. And so what I am thinking about right now too, is that it's, at its best, it might be an analytical system, but ultimately the decisions, and I think especially in that opening sequence, like what you're talking about, like there's no, what's the word? Um, there's no finesse, I guess, in the way that they, they make a decision, he's guilty, they go after him. And there's no understanding of, you know, like he might've had that urge in that moment to kill, but there was clearly no lead up. He was not intending to do it until like the second that he probably would have plunged the scissors into his wife's chest 
but there's no like there's no discussion around that there's really no trial there's nothing to then question right. the data there's no system to do that and so mm-hmm. like you were saying i think it's more risky to have a system that people could project or like advertise as purely objective whereas like when you start asking those questions about like let's say someone is in a domestic dis- dispute and you know, a wife kills her husband because he's beating her, you know, like there's no system to ask those questions after the fact. I think it's just like there's an arrest and they're guilty and they go into the, you know, they get like shut down or, you know, they're basically brain dead. And it's like, I don't think that I could trust a system that's pitched as objective when in reality, every single situation is going to be different. Yeah. To your point, You mentioned something I think was very important when he's going through that really great scene of analyzing, you know, the, the visions from the precogs. If I'm not mistaken, the two individuals that are helping him analyze those visions are the same people each time. Yes. And so to a greater point, it's like when you kind of walk that back or apply it to modern, you know, today, everybody's entitled to due process with a jury of their peers, every jury for that, you know, it's going to be different per crime per the individual. So to have these two people being like, it looks like you did it, go get them. And it's like every single time for everybody that's in that (laughs) detention center, you've made that decision on. I mean, at least that's what we assume because uh, that's Mm -hmm. all we're given. So I thought I was sitting there thinking, I was like, no, that's, Mm -hmm. that's completely broken. That's not right at all. And and I think uh, along this, 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 this last watch was, I had a totally different perception of the film. I love it from a aesthetic and a, uh, I mean, it's a great action movie. We haven't talked about that really that much. It is a great mm-hmm. action film. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But I think that also is maybe a statement piece. Uh, the quickness of a decision, the quickness of such a serious decision is definitely something to kind of maybe we could definitely go down a rabbit hole on, but uh, this, this last time I watched the movie, I was like, I dislike this movie for a larger variety of reasons than previously after reading the short story. Um, Mm. But it doesn't mean I don't, you know, like it or haven't loved it in the past or still don't love it. It just, it was completely different for me. And decisions based off of subjective evidence as Lorik brought up earlier. And there's even, um, we watched that docu-series a few years ago, which kind of covers cases solved via like footage, like, uh, you know, security camera footage and how we like to think that. of that. Yeah. yeah. We like to think of that mm. footage as, well, people are caught on tape. So it's very simple black and white issue. They're either guilty or they're not. But the whole thesis of that series is that, no, there's actually a lot of investigative work that needs to go into just analyzing what you see. And that couldn't be more, you know, accurately represented in the movie where they're given images, but they need to deduce the exact details from those images, right? They're not even clear most of the time where these people are. And that incredible opening sequence is a great way to start the movie with a bang, but also to prove that point of how the the cops are working on kind of a a shaky system of details. My favorite part of the opening is when the pilot is like, 50 seconds, Anderton, and he goes, shut up, Ivana. (laughs) Uh, 
Yeah, <laughs> I'm <that's>... like, whoa. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, a few quick notes that I loved. Um, the whole landing in front of the yoga class when he like mm-hmm. lands in a yoga pose, like what was that? <laughs> it was so silly. <laughs> and I actually looked it up. He, Spielberg hired the world's like top five contortionists just for that scene. It's like, really? Oh, like, what, what was that? That was pretty silly. Um, yeah. Also love the amount of plants in John's apartment. Man, he's got a whole <laughs> greenhouse in there. I didn't and even think about I've, that. As I've recently grown to appreciate plants, right? I, I was like, oh man, how's this guy have time to take care of all these plants? Like he's a hardcore drug <laughs> addict and you know, yeah. stopping murders, but has a great apartment full of plants. Um, they probably have a self-watering system in the future. I'm sure. Though. I'm sure in the future they do. <laughs> There's yeah, an app definitely. for that. Um, yeah, definitely. I loved a few certain phrases. They like. I loved that the new drug was Neurowin. I thought that was really yeah. cool. Like, just a mm-hmm. really cool. It's basically they predicted vaping is what they pretty much did. Sure. <laughs> so, is uh but i wanted to get born to into norwin and i i love that they made john a drug addict like he's i mean this yeah. is a troubled troubled man and uh, he's not perfect and he's got some demons and yeah he's a drug addict that was, that was pretty funny um i love that they used the term photon milk for the precogs <laughs> <laughs> and wally can we talk about wally for a second and what a creep that guy is oh yeah um, so gross yeah awful. i I didn't like, want to bring milk, that up. All they can see is the future. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I think that's going to take me down a rabbit hole of like yeah. how. <laughs> Sorry, we don't need to get into Wally. How awful yeah. Wally is. yeah. I don't feel bad for Wally. <laughs> oh, wait, are we talking about the guy that's that taking guy. care of the. The guy that takes care of Why do you feel bad for him? He's a so, well, there's, that, there's that scene where he's, he's like, that's his whole life. And there's a, a yeah. really, there's a really sm- short snippet at the very beginning of the movie when they have a up close shot of Wally and you can see like how he feels about a decision that's being made and, or how he feels about, I think it's either Colin Farrell, his perception of the precogs and to Wally, it's like, he's their caretaker. And there is another scene where he's brushing Agatha's teeth (laughs) and he's talking to her and agreed. It's, it's definitely like, it is unsettling. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm not saying he's not a total creep, but I, but from what he's telling Agatha, he's like, my mom's boyfriend came over last night and, you know, <laughs> she made me like stay down at dinner. It's like, this is a guy that like lives at home, you know, with his mom. There's definitely a, a trauma there with a, you know, dissolved marriage and or for whatever reason, or maybe not even one at all. And so, you know, all he has are those three beings that he oversees. And that's that's his existence. He kind of is in there with them at the same time, trapped. And I think, yeah. I don't know. I just felt bad for the guy. I didn't like really focus on, on him that much, but um, I, guess. I think anybody that has a day job that involves standing in a bath of milk the photon might milk. be questioned. Photon milk. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I guess my, my biggest concern with him, which I think is probably Spielberg's fault. I don't think it's the actor or the character development was just like, he did feel weird around Agatha. Cause like she is a com- incapacitated person. <laughs> and he just mm-hmm. like, there were some moves where I was like, you know, brushing her teeth, taking care of them. Like I, I appreciated that development, but any further. And I was like, ah, has he kissed yeah. her? Well, like, has he? Right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't when know. She's returned. Yeah. He goes like, I missed you that's so much. In his yeah. Face. I don't yeah. know. There were just yeah. some moments like that where I was like, that's probably just an editor Spielberg, like maybe just didn't have the finesse to 
not have that weird element. Cause I agree. Like I feel, I feel for him. Like he does kind of seem like a loser. And I think part of that whole development too goes into why like he likes Anderton. Cause I feel like Anderton has been also respectful of what the precogs can do. And so I kind of liked yeah. that he like gave him that two minute, you know, escape window and stuff like that. But again, I'm going down a hole. So <laughs> we can, I feel like I have more to say. So I'll just wrap it up. In regard to the action sequences, how do y'all feel about the the warehouse scene in the where he basically gets turned into a Tesla? <laughs> that came out of Attack of the Clones, and I stand by that. I think he completely talked oh, to George Lucas. 100%. He was literally texting George Lucas and was like, I'm going to lift this, buddy. <laughs> Tidbit, there was supposed to be a near identical well not identical because th- a sequence like this where there's a fight in a car factory and the protagonist gets trapped in a car that's Hobson being made shot. uh yeah, Hobson yeah. Shot. no was actually supposed to be it, it was in the original script for north by northwest oh alfred hitchcock's movie which is similar someone who's being framed on the run from in agency so very similar themes is it a little ridiculous how his escape ride is built around him yes <laughs> but i love that sequence because you okay so in the film there is first the sequence where the cops on jetpacks catch up to him there's this amazing sequence that's all practical for the most part except for the actual flames coming out of the jetpacks uh where he has mm-hmm. this huge fight that goes on for a really long time and it's impressive but you know they crash into buildings and they cook someone's hamburgers the family's hamburgers (laughs) um and then it's over and then you're conditioned as you've watched movies before okay end of an action sequence now the slow part's gonna come and immediately when that sequence ends who pulls up in the car, but it's Colin Farrell, another action sequence right off the yeah. bat. So yeah. it, is it silly? Yes. But I love how the movie just keeps on going. It throws everything at you in that car sequence. That's when they have the sonic boom guns, which is like just the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. Mm-hmm. They have, you know, Colin Farrell and Tom Cruise have a fight. Uh, like on top of, of these the, this crane oh, yeah. and it's it's so over the top and ridiculous speaking over the top love colin farrell is this one of his strongest performances no i don't think so but in the in the recent years he's had such a not a resurgence but he's proven himself to be one of the best in the biz i mean banshees of inishiram which yeah. came out last year in bruges all the, like 10 years ago batman. Uh, his, yeah the batman he's incredible on that uh the lobster he's great and i'm glad that he's he's getting into this more character actor stuff. so, so I thought he, yeah he i thought it was good here but i was gonna say total too much recall. too much gum chewing yeah <laughs> that was funny total yeah. recall he's really good i also noticed that he is really good at an american accent considering he's irish and i love mm-hmm. that he was able to use his accent in banshees of your inner i loved that movie but i think it's yeah even more to your point he's great in an american accent some people can't do it. And I was like listening specifically for any type of slip because I am annoying that way. And he didn't make yeah. any slips during this movie. He's really good. So I assume He's that's because a... a lot of people have told him absolutely under no circumstances are you allowed to speak with an Irish brogue. Um, because, right. quote, you know, but anyway. Yeah. 
Yeah, I want I real real quick. I want I want to expand upon a little bit why I didn't like the book and see if I'm completely being irrational or not, or if you guys even picked up on on why I didn't like it. In my opinion, let me, let me put it this way. Try to stay with me on this, because um, maybe it just happened to me in high school and college. But when when you're writing a paper, and you know that you're not super interested in it, but there's a word limit, so you then stretch your sentences mm -hmm. and add a lot of filler to, to hit the limit. That's mm -hmm. what I felt like was happening in this book. And on top mm -hmm. of that, he uses, and I, I need to remember this was what, 1950s, 1960s. Um, he uses yeah. these super generic terms that in the content context don't feel right when you say it out loud. And I have a couple of, I have a bunch of examples. Let's hear um, yeah, let's because hear he goes, so, so this is, this is a, this is a, a blurb that just like really bothered me. He goes squatting down. This is when he's, he's breaking into the monkey block and, and trying to find the minority report. So he goes squatting down. Anderton began disassembling the protective shields that guarded the tape reel stored in the analytical machinery using schematics. He traced the leads back from the final stages of the integrated computers to the point where Jerry's individual equipment branched off. Consulting the code chart, he selected the section of tape which referred to his particular card. Like, those three sentences are complete fluff. And he could have just said, like, he broke into the machine and, and found his card. And, like, using schematics, he, he traced it back, finding the – like, it sounds like a 12-year-old is telling him a story and he's writing it down and then adding – like a thesaurus, like I, I picture 12 year old, like, yeah, he found it using schematics, you know, and then he, he found the color coded chart. And there's, there's so many examples of that, that I was reading this getting really, really upset. Um, he also keeps saying the army people. And like, that's not how you talk. You don't say the army people, you say the army. Because he'd be like, yeah, don't let anyone hear, especially the army people. It's like, no, you don't, like, no, no one talks like that. So just like all these little things where he would, he would use a word or a phrase that doesn't quite fit right. Um, yeah, he's like, he had approximately 24 hours. Then the army people would check over their cards and discover the discrepancy. Like, nah, that's, there's another one. Oh, wait, there's, there's, there's more, there's more. It's got to be done. I don't see how you can kill Kaplan. Anderton then got out his heavy-duty military weapon Fleming had tossed to him. I'll use this. You mean a gun? <laughs> like, I, I just, it, it bothered me so much because there's so many of these examples of, like, heavy-duty military weapon. No, you, you called it a gun in the sentence before. Why are you, is there a word limit you're trying to hit here? So Interesting. I, I, maybe I'm getting really technical, but all these little things, I was just, like, getting angrier and angrier as I was reading this short story because I felt like he was trying to hit a word limit. And a twelve-year-old was telling him the story. That's so funny. I didn't but notice that's that. That's my that's my take. That's my take on it. Yeah. It, <laughs> but that's it, a really fair it's point. It's valid. It's valid, Tim. Yeah. Although I yeah. think all the sci-fi nerds will never allow you back on this podcast again. So you know what? Good going. Yeah, if that's well, there, you go. That's I'm, I'm yeah. a little scared to read Total Recall after this. To be honest with you, there's all, there's also just some really like talking about Disney lines. There's a line where. Whitwer goes, I guess not, Whitwer admitted awkwardly. Maybe I don't have this job down as neatly as I imagined. You will. In time, you'll be a good police officer. You believe in the status. Like, what? <laughs> well, Tim, you're going to hate this because Total Recall. Oh, do you know what the short story is titled? I do not. 
It's called We Can Remember <laughs> It For You Wholesale. <laughs> <laughs> so oh to boy. your point, I don't know that if Phil is a big yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it is a good title, but maybe he's not the master of concise writing. <laughs> I'll give you that. He's, he's definitely I think, no Hemingway. Because Total mm. Recall is such an incredible title. And the company that does the Total Recall work is called Recall, which I think is really cool too. And it's mm. R-E-K-A-L. So it's like one of those sci-fi sort of ah, twists on a word. And he even goes into the office in the short story. He goes into the office and he's like, hi, I'm looking for recal. And they're like, oh, recall. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's like kind of fun like that. Nice. But to your point, yeah. Total Recall is a much better movie title than we can remember it for you wholesale. <laughs> can you imagine <laughs> that same on with Blade a Runner poster? Too. Yeah, exactly. Blade Commander's Runner. Dream Although Electric I like Sheet. the title. Yeah, that's I mean, like very yeah. literary. But well, that's... That's my that's my rant. I'll rant over on uh, on the book. It's really yeah. bothered me. Well, we can we can cover Total Recall in another episode. And oh man, if we if we could all get together and do Total Recall, that'd be really interesting actually to do the story and then do a dual yeah comparison between Schwarzenegger, which I will violently defend. Oh, I shouldn't man. have. To be fair, and I should have called be it Tim trash. Tim and I versus you two. Or yeah, maybe it, it, it is. We'd be, we'd be we'd be strong after already. The Schwarzenegger movie isn't trash. It's just silly. <laughs> yeah. We love silly here, especially in... Same, same time next week. Court. Let's do it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Is everyone free, like, tomorrow? It's actually? a short story. <laughs> I, you can read it in, like, three um, minutes. Final, but... Yeah. Final ratings, Ryan, for both the short story and the movie, out of four stars. Out of four. Uh, let's see. I would give the short story a three out of four. And I would give, I think I'd give them both a three out of four. Cool. I mean, I think that they were, they, they both, the adaptation in the film, the film is, does a great job of expounding on the uh, skeleton that PKD provided. I think they did a great job on it. I think I have my, as I stated, my own issues with it, but um, you know, Tim, for reasons you've mentioned too, there were drawbacks for me reading the short story. It was, it was kind of a, uh, even though it's short, a uh, kind of had to push through it, but um, loved it for the thematic content. I, I think both of them are are profound, very far ahead of their time for similar and different reasons, but I think three out of four for both. Awesome. All right, bro, Roton, Tim, final ratings. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Nice. Yeah. All fair points. Lore. Um, I think I'm right. I'm sitting where Ryan is because it's not my favorite PKD story, but the concept is so interesting that I'm still thinking about it. And it's so terrifying that I'm still thinking about it being real. So three out of four. I feel like I might go back and reread it just to look out for the interesting writing choices. Um, Because usually I'm a huge (laughs) stickler for that too. And that's why I've talked about at length on the podcast about why I don't like contemporary writing, because I think a lot of times things can be condensed into short stories. If you have like an interesting idea that maybe isn't worth a whole novel, I feel like sometimes Mm. writers develop whole novels that just shouldn't be novels and they become boring and there's a lot of fluff. So I might go back and just like, just for giggles, go back and circle some stuff like that. But um, and the movie, I, I really do enjoy it. Like it's a, it's a romp. I think like not to keep throwing you under the bus, but I think this for me is more of a guilty pleasure than total recall will be when I go back and rewatch that. Cause I just like, I must've yeah. been in like the, just the right mood to watch that. And I thought it was just like a really tight movie. It was so much fun. I think I, I really like Colin Farrell being the lead. And I liked that he was in this movie too. Cause when he showed up, I was like, Oh shit, I forgot he's in this. And he's such yeah. a, he's such a great actor. And yeah, and so for him being the the front of that movie, I just for some reason like thought it was just a tighter adaptation. But whatever. So three out of four for the movie for me. I definitely want to rewatch it because it's fun. Um, it just yeah. has those silly moments yeah. that kind of take me out of it, like the, the burger scene. I'm just like <laughs> so dumb. <Yeah. laughs> but I can so forgive fun. it. It's fun. Dumb and fun. Yeah, the short story. As I talked about earlier, I was just so frustrated because of the potential of it Mm. all to be expanded. I mean, there's nothing... I would rather a book be bad than have wasted potential. You know, it's like, I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed, right? And you... It's like, that's almost worse. So fascinating concept. And the movie owes everything to Philip K. Dick, obviously. So I'm going two out of four, which feels both a little too low but also too high for the visceral emotional reaction I have to its brevity and normally I'm gunning for that normally I want books to be shorter just like Laura was talking about with like a lot of literature can be condensed but this was the complete opposite uh, for me and I'm a huge fan of PKD I mean Electric Sheep is a perfect example of a fairly short book that is just profoundly interesting so i felt like this could have been a book or should have been rather there was a moment the in movie... the rain in this movie that also made me think mm. of the climactic yeah. ending of blade runner but Definitely. i interrupted you Sorry. no no problem at all the movie i think because i do have that nostalgia factor baked into it of seeing it in seventh grade just as i was developing my taste and my love for movies uh, I'll always think of that. I think it's infinitely rewatchable. One of the most rewatchable movies that we've covered on this podcast, in my opinion. I do forgive a lot of its flaws. Is the script airtight? No. Uh, but it it is an example of a good adaptation. And Definitely. Isn't that what we're covering on this pod? Am I right? Ladies. Uh, so, so yeah, I'm going, I'm going four out of four with the asterisk of being slightly biased, but I still love it. Hey, that's fair. It's our podcast. Yeah, we can do whatever <laughs> we want. So, yeah. What uh, 
what a jam-packed ep. You know, the tragic thing of these guest episodes, Tim and Ryan, is that literally we could talk for another two hours. And I want to. I want to do that. Every part of my being is like, don't end this. But but alas, we need to. Th- these episodes edit. can't be four hours long. <laughs> yeah, we got to edit. Uh, so, yeah. Tim and Ryan, thank you so much for being on the pod. You've, all your episodes are just so insightful. Uh, you're, you're great guests. And let's have you back for the Total Recall episode for sure. The, yeah. And... Um, of course. And next week, we'll be back with our mega episode. It's part two of our books that we wish were movies. That is going to be... I'm so that, excited for this. Yeah. S- speaking of long episodes, that's going to be a long one, too. But we can't wait to do the that. the fans are asking for it. So. Yeah, the fans... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. As always, thanks for listening. We love and appreciate all of you. Please follow, rate, review, subscribe if you want to. No pressure, although we've seen your future and you're listening to our podcast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Great line. Great. Call back to the movie. Um, all right. Well, we'll see you on the next one.